Jesus, Lord, we just thank you so much for our young adults and for this internship. And God, we just thank you for all the amazing teachers that you let us have in this particular internship and all the influence from Sacramento. And just for other, from other groups, too, like 111 Global. Lord, you've just given us many gifts in this internship. I just want to thank you for that. And I just pray that even though the internship's coming to a close, Lord, I just pray that our young adults group can continue and that we can t- continue to just um, just be a source of good spiritual food for young adults and that more and more would come and just receive of what good food you're handing out in this prayer room uh, through your word and through worship and prayer and teaching and so we, we pray for even more young people to be able to get involved and thank you for Brent coming and Michaela just some new people and we just pray, um, yeah, that you would just continue to draw these young adults in um, to receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what is contemplative prayer? What is it? It's just like motion bar, kiss your hands, or drag. Oh, no, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks, Denise. All right. Sorry, go ahead. Just rub it in your hand. Distraction. Just pick it up. Okay, contemplative prayer. Getting ready. Um, Basically, definition, the contemplative prayer is a discovery of God inside of you. Okay? So when the moment you receive Christ or get born again, God comes to live inside of you in your innermost being, and you begin a life journey coming to know him who lives in you right? Here's the scripture. Therefore, if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation, right? A new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, fresh and new has come. So your body is like a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And just as like there's a physical temple described in the Bible, you know, or there, there was a physical temple in history, right? The physical temple had three parts. They had like the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, like when you read about it, the Lord dwelt in this thing called the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. Like the presence of God was in this Ark. And that's how the Lord did things in in the Old Covenant. Um, But now in the New Covenant, like we carry the presence of God. So it's almost like we're the Ark in a sense, right? And in our innermost being, like deep inside of us, that's like the Holy of Holies because that's where the Lord, his spirit resides. So then we have the outer, the, the, um, so that's the innermost. Then we have like the inner court, which is our, um, our soul, you know, like our mind, will, our emotions, you know, that would be like inner court. And then there's like outer court, which is like our physical body. So, so we have like three parts, even like the temple had three parts. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, so look, look at this Bible verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple, the very sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, whom you have received as a gift from God? You are not your own, right? And so our body is the temple. Is only temple if you have Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, you have to have Jesus living in you for it to be the temple. Um, but interestingly, he created humans to have that capacity, right? So when he created us in his image, 
he created that space in us where his spirit wants to reside right so that's why we always even if people don't know god yet they have a kind of a vacuum inside of them that is for god reserved for god only and they're hungry for him even if they don't know it right which is why we're always trying to fill that vacuum with something so if we don't have it filled with god usually in the world we'll try to fill it with something else you know and that can become sinful habits or it could just become you know like being consumed with sports or being consumed with whatever you know we're trying to fill the vacuum um but when we have god we don't need to try to fill that anymore it's like he is fulfilling like he's the one who can truly fill us and nothing else can so that leaves us groping for him and he he made us that way yes you're filled with God, you still have that desire that you've never really filled. You always want more. Mm-hmm. I know. He leaves us even longing for him, even when we have him. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I think it's like, there's always a void that we need that is left to that we can desire more. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because God is just like so vast and like yeah. so deep, like we can never can like, never come to be. Yeah, even even when we're in our glorified bodies for all eternity, we're not going to be like we're not going to ever be like oh now I know everything about God. Yeah. No, nope. <laughs> impossible. Like for all eternity, we will be receiving revelation on who God is, and we won't ever get to the end of it. Because he's infinite, you know? And so it's really, that's why the angels can keep worshiping him night and day and not get bored at all. That's what shocks me about people who are like, oh yeah, I read the Bible once. I could, like, I'm good. I read the Bible once. And it's like, yeah, it's a Bible. The the Bible thing, you would never truly understand. No, you can't get to the, you can't get to the, we can read this forever. In fact, we will be reading this, even in the, age to come, like even in forever and ever, we will still be reading the word of God and contemplating the word and the cross, everything he did. So, okay, paragraph B, God resides in your innermost being. Here's a Bible verse, John 7, 38, who, who believes in me, right, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being shall flow springs and rivers of living water okay that's speaking of the holy spirit coming out of your innermost being so the goal of contemplation okay it's twofold it's like you taking a journey inside to your innermost being where god is dwelling but also god is taking a journey right not leaving your innermost place but expanding himself from your innermost place into your soul which is your mind your will and your emotions and even into your physical body right so god wants to fill us all of us body soul and spirit like every part of us and even you know his presence can be so expansive it can even be outside of our physical body right have you ever felt have you ever been around one around around somebody who's really packing the holy spirit and they come into the room and the whole room kind of shifts have you ever felt that on someone? Like they're just so full of God that you're like, something just shifted in the whole room when that person walked in. Why? Well, possibly Holy Spirit is so taken them over and even outside of their physical body. When they walk in the room, it's like it's like they came in 
15 feet ago. You know what I'm saying? Because the Spirit of God is packing with them. And I've been around people that way where I'm like, where I met someone who's like, oh my gosh, this person's really full of the Lord. And it's almost like I could sense their presence, who God is in them from across the room. It's, and, and you hear these crazy revival stories. If you do any history, like reading on revival history, you know, um, different times people who are really packing a whole God on the inside come into a region and the region gets shaken in a lot of ways or something shifts. I mean, and we've seen that happen with even like, even like Billy Graham or, um, you know, there's could be many different examples of that, but we can always get more of the Holy Spirit. So this contemplation, it's a journey, right? And so, um, let me just try to give you another definition of contemplation. So there's kind of a contrast, there's kind of a difference between meditation and contemplation. So if you're meditating on the word of God, for instance, say you take one scripture and you go, okay, I want to meditate on this one verse or like what I do in the prayer room, pray this one verse over and over. That's kind of a meditation on it, you know? We're just, we're thinking about it. You might even do a word study on it or like you just get before the cross maybe on your knees and you're like, God, teach me John 1, 1, like what Cheryl was saying, you know, the word was with God, the word was God. And you're just like meditating on that, thinking about it, praying, kind of pray, reading the scriptures, Lord, teach me this scripture. So there's like a meditation, like you're doing something, um, but you're, you're in conversation with God and you're asking him to do something, right? And so the contemplation part is the part that he does, basically. So the meditation part is the part that we do. Like, we put our effort in to do something to seek God, right? But we're, like, actively seeking him, not, you know, it's a two-way conversation. You know, like, this is a real relationship. It's not just one way. It's not just we just send him our list of things we want him to do, and that's it, and hope he does something. No, he's, like, actively involved in our lives. So contemplation is really the part that he does. Like when he shows up and he gives you a revelation, right, or something, you're like, whoa, whoa, I just got something from God, right? So to me, that's like the difference between like meditation and contemplation, right? And so contemplative prayer, when we say contemplative prayer, we're really seeking that kind of prayer that's full of the revelation of God. It's full of his revelation where he, we're getting downloads from Holy Spirit and we're getting basically revelation. So, you know that verse we always pray in the prayer room, Ephesians 1.17? We pray it over and over and over. God, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of the man Jesus, right? We're praying for contemplative prayer. You know, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Jesus. That is what contemplation is. If we get a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know who he really is, and he starts to unpack who he is to our hearts, that is what contemplation is. Does that make sense? It's super biblical. It's just a, a term we use. The Bible doesn't really use the word contemplation. We use that word, but it's that's what it is. That's what it is. Ephesians 1.17 is a great example of what it is. So 
in paragraph two, or Roman numeral two, I talk about this three-stage journey, okay? So this three-stage journey, the, these three stages, the purgative stage, the illuminative stage, and the unitive stage, I'll just basically tell you what those are, and um, different um, godly people throughout history, like saints, I don't know, from way back, early church times, I don't even know how far back this goes, but they, they began to write on these three stages of um, the journey um, unto basically the ultimate goal at the end of this, at the end of these stages, and, and our ultimate goal in our life, and our ultimate goal in contemplative prayer, basically the ultimate goal for everything, right, is union with God. So that's like the highest level of intimacy with Christ that we can have, union with God. Now, at some level, we have union with God at some level right now, right? Because Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So we have some union, right? And But there's always, like you guys were saying, there's more. There's more. Like, there's way more. And the more we surrender and the more we spend time with him, the more we receive, the more he takes us over, the more we become in union with him. Okay? So that's really the end goal of all of our lives. <laughs> and... These three-stage journey is just kind of like this is basically different people have written on this three-stage journey and unpacked it quite a bit. So this gives you just basic, okay? Purgative stage, purging, right? Purging is like you're getting rid of sin. So the, the beginning of your life in Christ, you turn away from sin. And you're like, okay, I don't want this life anymore. I want to go after God. So that's what repentance is when you repent and come to Christ. You're doing a 180. Because you, before you were with the world, you do a 180. You turn your back on sin. You're like, I'm going after God. Okay? So then begins the purgative stage where stuff's getting purged out of you. Right? Sin, the world, the devil, whatever. Right? So it's like begins with conversion, turning away from sin, bringing your life into conformity with the moral law. Right? Beginning a habit of prayer, or Bible study, maintaining a stable life. Right? In the church. That's basically the beginnings of the Christian life. Okay, stage two, the illuminative stage, okay? Where kind of like illuminative means like the light bulb goes off in your head. You're like, oh, now I'm starting to understand. Now I'm starting to get this, right? Continuing growth into the things of God, characterized by deeper prayer, growth in the virtues, right? The virtues would be like good habits of holiness, deepening love of neighbor, Greater moral stability, more complete surrender to the Lordship of Christ, greater detachment from all that is not God, right? You become you start to become detached from the things of the world and start to become attached to God. Um, increasing desire for full union with Him. And this stage is accompanied by various kinds of trials and purifications, like all the stages have that. <laughs> but sometimes also consolations and blessings from the Holy Spirit. So Typically, in the illuminative stage, you um, begin to receive communications from God, and you begin to realize, oh my gosh, he talks to me too. It's not just me talking to him. You know, because at the very beginning, maybe you don't hear his voice, or you don't know how to recognize his voice. But then in the illuminative stage, you start to get impressions, you start to get revelations, maybe a dream. You start to realize, oh, God's real. Oh, he is speaking to me, right? So that's the illuminative stage. It's almost like we could call it the prophetic 
you know, where you're, you're, you're awakened to, oh, this thing goes two ways. God speaks to me too. And so that's the eliminative stage. And by the way, all these stages, they don't really go one, two, three, like in order. It's more like all three are happening, kind of overlapping or at the same time or some, you know, in different ways. So it's not like just like, a, you know, it's not like, do, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so stage three, the unitive stage. Okay, this stage, this is where we're talking about more like deep union with God. This stage is one of deep habitual union with God, characterized by deep joy, profound humility, freedom from fears of suffering or trials, great desire to serve God, great fruitfulness, okay, the experience of the presence of God almost continual, great insight into the things of God is experienced. While not without suffering, suffering now becomes primarily the grace of sharing in the redeeming suffering of Christ rather than suffering of purification. This is deep habitual union is also called spiritual marriage or transforming union. Okay, so you know how God... How do you get to this one? How do you get to it? Yeah. This is the journey we're all on, Jordan. And so you know like how in the internship we've had a lot of teachings on the bridal paradigm? You know, we use that word. What does that mean? It means... The church sees herself as the bride of Christ. And so at the end of the book of Revelation, right, the very end of the book, it's the spirit and the bride cry for the Lord Jesus to come. And it's, it's interesting because at the end, right, the, the church will have an identity as the bride. Even though we're many other things. We're the army of God. We're the sons and daughters of God. All the, we have different identities. But at the end of the book, right, right before he comes, we're known as the bride. And we see ourselves as the bride. So that's really special. Because what is he saying? He's calling us his bride. He's saying he wants the closest union with us that can be had. Like he wants to bring us into the very circle of the Trinity. Like the Godhead, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have this perfect union. They have this perfect love. They have no needs in this place. They don't need us, but because they have perfect love, love has a way of just like exploding out. Like love is fruitful. Like when you have true love, you have fruitfulness. And so part of the God's head's fruitfulness was creating man. They're like, we have to love. We just have to love. So let's create some human beings. (laughs) And then we're just going to love them, you know, because love just must be fruitful. Because that is like the nature of love. And so the fact that the Godhead is like, yeah, let's make man in our image. That is like mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing. And then how much the Godhead loved us that they decided between the three of them, we're going to send you, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, to become one of them. You know, and then save them from this peril that they got themselves into, right? But they loved us so much, you know? And so it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing love story that we're in, and we are the bride. And so the bride just shows us, you know, I want the deepest union ever with my people. And so from like the beginning of Genesis to the book of Revelation, starts with the wedding, ends with the wedding, right? It's like the Lord saying, I just want to be with them where they are. And Jesus' prayer in John 17 Father, I desire that they be with me 
where I, where I am with you, you know? It's like that is his chief desire, his chief heart. Lord, I want them to be with me. I want them to see me in my glory. Like, he's basically saying, Father, can they come to my house? You know, I love them so much. I want them to come to my house. Can they come over and spend the night? I mean, (laughs) think of it, think of it like on our terms. You know what I mean? Like, he loves us so much. And um, so that is what God's after. He's after this union with us more than we are after it. Like, we want that. We read this and we're like, God, I want that, right? And he's like, you have no idea how much I want you to have that. Like, he wants that for us much more than we even want it, right? Because we have, we have struggles and sins and things that keep us. But he's like, I've got you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get there, you know? And so that's what this whole journey is about. Um, page two. Um, so... Teresa of Avila, um, she is a saint from like the 1500s who was basically a reformer um, in the Catholic Church and she was on fire for God and she was a woman of prayer, she was a nun um, and she and they had like superiors where like her superiors were telling her because she was deep in prayer, they were saying we want you to write a book for, for the sisters, you know? so that they can learn to pray like you because you obviously have this gift of prayer. <laughs> and so she's, she was under obedience to write this book on prayer, and she's like, I don't even know if I can write a book. You know, she was felt very inadequate in writing a book, but she was commanded to write a book, and they did what they were told, right? So she wrote this book. It's called um, The Seven Mansions. It's also called Interior Castle um, because this was so cool as she was – as the Lord told her, not the Lord, but her superior. So the Lord, through her superior, said, you must write a book on prayer. She was like, oh, God, you're going to have to help me with this because I don't know how to describe. I don't know how to help my sisters learn to pray, you know? And so she was literally asking the Lord for revelation on what to write, and the Lord gave her a picture. And he gave her a picture of the soul being like a castle and like a beautiful crystal jewel castle. And it had many rooms. And, um, and so she begins to write her book describing what she calls the seven mansions or the seven rooms. But she says there's many more rooms than seven. But she just wrote on seven. But basically, the, the way the Holy Spirit helped her to describe her inner life, her journey on the inside, going into the innermost place to meet with God, is she, she did this through this image that the Lord gave her in prayer of the soul being like a castle. So like when you're first coming into like the outer courts and the castle of the soul, you know, she's seeing this picture, she's seeing like reptiles, you know? And like, oh, these reptiles are trying to act, they're trying to get the person. So they're like, almost like the demons, you know? They're trying to like, trying to keep this person from getting to their, the holy of holies on the inside the innermost place, right? And so it's just very interesting. Um, so I don't even see what I say in here. Um, she pictures that the soul is a castle. Okay, so the Lord lives in the seventh mansion, right? So the first three mansions, you could say those are kind of like the purgative stage, like the first stage. So in the first three mansions where the person's just going to the inside, they're just kind of in the outer courts, and they're like, there's 
there's reptiles, there's things to kind of hinder them, block them from getting deeper, the right? Yeah, exactly. And then mansions four is like the illuminative stage that I just described, right? So mansion four is where things start to happen, like Holy Spirit, you start to hear his voice, you realize, oh my goodness, he's real. Um, the prophetic is kind of opened up to you. Usually there could be like a, a baptism of the Holy Spirit or like a filling of the Holy Spirit in a new way where you're like, you always had the Holy Spirit, but there's like more and you're like experiencing it more. Um, Holy Spirit activity becomes increased and pronounced. Gifts of the Holy Spirit might start to flow through you. You desire holiness. You even want to fast sometimes. You want to obey the voice of God. You want to fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So this is like another level of intimacy with Christ, basically. A limited stage. It's like mansion four. And then mansions five through seven is this union with God. So all three mansions, five through seven, are speaking of the unitive stage, but like the increase. Starts at five, but seven is like more than five. And so, um, Jordan. Do like five and seven, and on the other page, the unitive stage, you're not having to like you're in heaven with him, or no? No, this is for here. Oh, okay. This is for this is all for here. Like you can get to such deep levels of union with God even before you get your glorified body. And that, I mean, obviously there's m much that we don't get till we get to heaven, right? Because when we see him, we will be like him. <laughs> we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we will have a glorified body, and we'll be able to take intake much more of his glory and his presence than we can while we're still in this mortal body. <laughs> but he gives us such a down payment with the Holy Spirit that we can experience much deep union with him while we're still here. That's what's so amazing. Um, so I put down here Ephesians 3, 16 through 20, and we this is another apostolic prayer we pray in the prayer room all the time. But it's basically, when you read Ephesians 3, right, 16 through 19, and literally this verse is so powerful, we read it and we kind of blow right by it because we're like, I don't, yeah, I don't even know what that means. How can we even, what? It says that he would grant you, I prayed it tonight, right? According to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, right, of the love of God, which passes knowledge that you would be filled with the very fullness of God. It, when we read that, we're like, how can we be filled with the fullness of God? How does that even make sense? How can we be filled with the fullness of God? Like, that is, that's a crazy statement. It's, it's wild. And yet, that's what it's talking about. Like, it's talking about this union. Do you have to go, Brad? Yeah. No worries. It's bright. I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. I will I have my final at 740. Oh. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. So, oh, so no set. So no set. Oh, I'll probably stay out. I'll probably leave while uh, you are heading. Cool, cool, cool. So I'll see you for a second. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Y
All right, so we'll stay in touch with you yeah. and what's happening. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Of course, thank you for inviting me. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay, so page three, the purpose of contemplation, union with God. Okay, so this is where it's just like we can't really make union with God happen, right? This is the contemplation part where it says God has to do something. Like, we do something, right? We can position ourselves to receive union with God, but it's really God has to do what he does to make this happen, right? We can't achieve it. We can't, like, work hard enough. We can't surrender enough. Like, yes, we do all those things, but really, unless God does what he does, it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? Uh, but he, But we have to remember, he wants this to happen. Like, he desires union with us more than we desire it, okay? Why does he pick and choose? He doesn't pick and choose. He kind of of is, in some ways, working on us to detach from stuff of the world, right? So we're in the purgative stage. We're in the illuminative stage a lot because he's working on our hearts to prepare that soil so that he can come, right? Mm-hmm. But we have stuff that needs to be purged, and he's working on that. And we're the, the more that we're in agreement with what he wants to do in our lives, the more we're going to get there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just like a picking and choosing. Like, I think I'll choose her and not her. It's not like that. It's more like, no, he's working on all of us. And we're, wherever we're at in the journey, he's helping us to go to the next step. He's helping us to go to the next, you know, place with him. But, yeah, okay. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're not going to just be, like, the... Where did it go? Oh. You're not just going to be, like, in the purgative stage and then one day wake up and be like, oh, I'm going to be in the stage now. Yeah, like, Jordan, I would say you're definitely experiencing a lot of the eliminative stage. So when you're in here singing on the piano and getting stuff from the Lord, what is that? That's revelation, right? Yeah. That's part of the illuminative stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So remember how you used to say when you first came to the prayer room, you're like, oh my gosh, the prayer room is so boring. Like, this yes. is the most boring thing I've ever seen in my whole life, you know? I'm so embarrassed about that. No, it's, no, that's a great example. That is a, no, that's a perfect example because most people come in and that's their first that's kind and of they don't stick with it. Right, they don't stick with it. What happens when you stick with it? The illuminative stage starts to take hold of you, right? There is something that happens where you get Amy, I'm getting it. You start to get the culture of what is actually happening in here, you're like, Oh my gosh, I need to be in this room more. Like, I'm encountering God. Basically, you are encountering God in this room. Amy, this is good. Yeah, and that is the illuminative stage. Like, you've gotten to this place where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm encountering God. Like, I want to be back in that room. I want to do that Devo. I want to wake up early in the morning. It's just so worth it. I am encountering God. <laughs> so that's what's happening. And it just, it takes a while to get acclimated to what is happening in here. It's like, at first thing, it's so different from anything else. You're like, I don't really understand what's happening in this room. But then you just sit in it for a while, right? Yeah. And then you start to experience it, and you start to get some teaching, and it's all Bible. This is so Bible, you know?
We don't just come up with this stuff. Like, this is in the Word of God. <laughs> you know? So, you just come to know God in a deeper way. Well, he's on this journey, you guys, and he's after union. Like, he wants you to be his bride forever and ever. So, that is his end goal. <laughs> so, it's not like he's picking and choosing. He's like, I want you at union. Believe me. You know? But he works on us to help us get to the next stage, whatever that looks like in our lives, you know, because we all have to become detached from the world and attached to him. Um, So on page three, let's just read this quote. Um, Father Dubay, um, who is a Catholic priest, and he wrote this amazing book called Fire Within, and um, Mike Bickle loves this book, Fire Within, and he basically says, hey, this book needs to become the manual of IHOP. So if you go through an internship at IHOP, you read Fire Within. All their interns read Fire Within, right? It's kind of a fat book. It's not that easy to read, to be honest. First time I read it, there was a lot of um, vocabulary that I didn't know. I had to have a dictionary. I had to be like, what does that word mean? I've never heard of that word. So I read the book twice. By the second time, I was like, okay, I think I'm getting what the guy's saying now. But at first, it was a kind of a hard read. It was like, I'm not really sure what he's talking about. It's pretty advanced. It's definitely like a college read or beyond. <laughs> um, but anyways, this is a quote from Fire Within. Let's see if you guys can track with it. I think you can. Okay, I'll try. Okay, do you want to read it? Sure, Amy. Okay. Sorry if I mispronounced word. No, it's good. God, being most respectful of the freedom he has given to us, speaks to our heart when it is uncluttered and silent. He does not interrupt worldly conversations and pursuits. We hear him, therefore, only to the extent that we are disposed by inner stillness and indistracted by selfish desire. He allows us to have exactly what we want. The detached individual is saying by his life, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. It is the pure heart that sees God, the single-minded person who seeks the things above not those on earth. This heart is sensitized to the Holy Spirit, his enlightenment, movements, and enkindlings. Enkindlings, yeah. Enkindlings. The detached man enjoys a great freedom because he is no longer enslaved to opinions of his fellow. He need not fret about what others think of him, his appearance, work, and accomplishments. Presage-seeking is slavery, and he is liberated from it. He who is dominated by... Anything is a slave to it. He who clings to nothing the night for its own sake is as free as a bird in flight. Finally, notes are saint. When the beloved sees his beloved and be of all else, he cannot long stay away. So much does God love us that when he finds us open and ready, he cannot refrain from filling us to the extent that we are empty. Just as nature abhors a vacuum, so does the Lord of supernature. I like that last part a lot. That was so good. Isn't that an amazing quote? He just can't help himself. He can't help himself. So part of what he's doing is emptying us, right? So let me just share with you. Here's a revelation that I got in the prayer room. Yeah, I got it in the prayer room one day. Oh, my goodness. Sometimes what the Lord will do in the prayer room. I'm just sitting there at the sound table. It was actually when we were in Dublin at this other church, good news. Just doing my thing, sitting at the sound table, I suddenly start to see the wedding feast at Cana in my mind's eye. Like I'm seeing Jesus. You know when he did his first miracle, turns water into wine? Mm -hmm. I'm seeing that scene. And I'm like, 
Okay, Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana. So I go to my Bible, right? I look it up. I find it in John chapter 2. So I'm in John chapter 2. I read, these ver- I read this verse, John chapter 2. I'm going to go to it. This is so crazy. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. When I read the first phrase, On the third day, I went into a travailing prayer. I had to leave the room and go to the back room because I was overwhelmed with God and getting revelation. And it was so intense. Why? What happened? Why is, why is it when I, when I read on the third day? Okay, that phrase, okay, I, I, it's like I instantly knew what that meant. And this is kind of what the Lord will do, giving you revelation. I knew that the third day meant the day of the Lord is the millennial reign of Christ, the third day. Like a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day in scripture. So it's been two days since the cross. It's been 2,000 years. The third day, on the third day, right? The third day is his reign on the earth. So when I read on the third day there was a wedding, I was like overwhelmed with, I had this understanding from the Lord that we were right in this space of time. It was like this very, if you could see time as a big timeline, right? It's been like, um, what, 4,000 years since early biblical history, right? 4,000 years since Adam and Eve to the cross, right? And so, and then the cross, it's been 2,000 years. So now we have 6,000 years. It's been six days. So there's like, in some ways, there's seven days of creation, right, that last. Does that make sense? Seven. So the last day, the day of the Lord, is the third day after, after he came. So we're, we're at 6,000 years, right? And the third day is coming, like the day of his reign. And so I understood in this vision that I was having that the time slot we're in is just this tiny space between day two and day three. Like it's almost the third day. Like the day three is like right there. It's like so close, in fact, right? And so I'm seeing the wedding feast at Cana, and I'm seeing Mary interceding, right, that he would turn water to wine. But I understood it in a different way. I understood it like, like she was praying for, um, I would say that the prayer movement, but beyond like just like people who do prayer rooms. It's like the praying church, you know, worldwide. Like she's praying. She's like, God, they're almost out of wine. Like they're almost out of like what you gave them to get them praying in the first place what you imparted to them to light them on fire, to get them going, like they're almost out of what you gave them. And they need new wine, you know? It's, they need new wine, or they're not gonna be able to be propelled into the next phase. And they're almost out of wine. So I see her interceding for like all of us in the earth who are part of the praying church, and we're desperate for him, and she's like, they need this wine. Like, they need this, this new wine. And so she's interceding. And then in the vision, I'm carrying these water pots. So in the story, you know how Jesus says, bring me the empty vessels. 
and they're these big water pots used for purification. So think about this. These water pots are used for washing and purifying. They were big, empty water pots. He's saying, bring me the empty vessels. And it's like, we are those empty vessels. Do you get it? It's like, he's purging us, he's purifying us. That purification's happening, right, in this purgative stage. And then he's emptying us of the world, of everything. You know, he's emptying us, he's detaching us, right? And as, like, just that quote that we just read, for all of those who are emptied, as emptied as they can get, right? And the Lord, so in this vision, I'm bringing him empty water pots, these big empty water, I'm bringing him empty vessels so that he can fill them. You know, they'll be filled with water, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But then when he changes water to wine in us, that is complete transformation. That is what we're talking about with union with God. That is when Christ lives his life in us and through us to the world around us. That's union. Like that change from water to wine is going to happen to the empty vessels. So it's so crazy. I was bringing him these empty vessels, you know? It's like, think about what we do in the prayer room. What do we do? We prepare people to get empty of themselves, to get rid of all the stuff that hinders love, we bring them to Christ, right? So he can fill them, like, with his Holy Spirit. But then what he wants to do is that union, change water to wine. It's going to be his life. No longer is it I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me and through me, to the world around me. So all of this is a download, right, in the prayer room. Like, I'm getting all this understanding from on the third day. Boom! I get this. I have to go to the back room because I'm so overwhelmed with God's presence, getting all of this understanding. And I understand that he's about to return, and we are in this tiny space of time. And I'm actually weeping and groaning as I'm bringing him the water pots, the empty vessels, because I realize there's not very many. There's not very many empty vessels. There's not very many people who have emptied themselves of everything that hinders love, you know? And I'm, and I'm repenting. I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry that there's not more empty vessels. I'm so sorry, you know, that there's just a few people here in the prayer room. There's not so many empty vessels. There's not so many people prepared to receive what you want to give them, which is fullness of Holy Spirit. Then when he changes water to wine, it's like, no longer is it I who live. It's Christ who lives in me and through me, Right? All of that happened in like almost an instant. All that, that revelation, that vision, that understanding, like all of that. And it's like, it's exactly like what we're talking about in this with union with God. And it's so like, this is what he wants to do. He wants to live his life again in the earth through us. Like he wants us to be his empty vessels. And that's what he can use. He can use the empty vessels. And so this whole process, purging, you know, and the illuminative, it's all so that we can be, like, emptied of everything else, detached, and then become fully attached to him. So that is one of my stories from the prayer room that kind of goes with this, you know. Um, 
And then I'll just end with this and we can pray. Um, at the last page, I talk about how contemplation on the Lord's passion is the pathway to union. So this is really the most important um, like one of the most important things we can do in our life, in our walk with God, is meditate on what he did on the cross. So to start doing that, you just start reading the scriptural accounts, you know, of what he did. And then if you want more, you get that book that's at the foot of the cross, John Toller book, and you open it up to pretty much any page and start reading because that man, John Toller, in the 1300s, he had, he had meditated on the passion of Christ so much, he wrote 400 pages on it. <laughs> he basically had full-blown living color of what happened to Christ. And it is stunning. It will cut you because it's so, it's so detailed. Like in the Bible, you don't get all the details. You get, yeah, they took, they took him here. They nailed him. You know, he died. They put him in the tomb. Like, it goes pretty fast when you read the account. You don't get all of the details of, like, everything that happened. But when you ask for the Lord to, to give you the details in a place of meditation, contemplation, if you ask him, God, what really happened to you? What happened to you that day? That, that's kind of a scary question to ask because he was tortured. You know, he was really brutally tortured. And if he actually shows you what happened to him, you'll never be the same. You know what I'm saying? Like, you won't be the same. You, you'll never want to sin again if you see what happened to him. And knowing that our sin put him there. Like, you don't ever want to sin again if you see that. And, I mean, I've only seen glimpses. I've had little visions of that. But it was enough to do a lot to me. You know, I haven't seen the full-blown thing. I don't know if I could take it if I did. You know what I mean? But um, that is like what I say the fast way to union with God is meditation on the passion. And um, reading a book like what's at the foot of the cross, I keep it over there for a reason. So people will open it up during their prayer room time and even read like a page or a paragraph and go, oh, my goodness. You know, because you'll get something if you just, you don't even have to go in order. <laughs> just open it up to page 100 and just start reading and read like one paragraph and be like, okay, I got something. <laughs> like it's that, it's that intense. Um, but we need to get around that because when we understand the love of God and what he did on the cross for us, that is what brings transformation more than anything else. Like we will be totally transformed if we understand that completely like that is the pathway because that was the way he displayed his love he um, he went so far you know to have us like he endured so much this is how he decided to display his love he's like I'm going to show you how far I will go for you and not even knowing if we would choose him like, we still have free will to say no. So he literally did this, not even knowing if we would choose him. I mean, yeah, he might have had foreknowledge. He knew. You know what I mean? But still, there is still this element of, like, 
he gives us the freedom to say no because that is true love. Love will never force. Never, ever. Love will never force. It says love does not force. He can't force because he is perfect love. So, yes, there is a hell and there is going to be people in hell one day. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Why? Why is there a hell? Why would God send people to hell? God's not sending people to hell. People send themselves to hell by choosing not to have him. And he gives them that choice. He's not going to force them into heaven to be with him. He loves them so much, but he, he can't force because perfect love will not force. And so that is why there is a hell. It's not that he doesn't love them. It's not that he's sending them there. It's that he's reached out to them their whole lives and they've said no over and over and over and over and over and over and over until their hearts have become so hard, you know? So, uh, but God, God did everything to have us, you know? So, um, Oh, guys, I love Jesus so much. Please <laughs> help, yeah. There is just nothing, nothing like him. And he really is looking for empty vessels, you know, people who will empty themselves. And that thing about him turning water to wine, I don't think it's happened yet, but in that vision, I got this impression, like he's like, I'm about to do this miracle. And when he did that miracle in the first century, he headed for the cross. So he knew he was going public when he did that miracle. Like he could no longer be hidden. Once he did that first miracle, he was like, I'm headed straight to the cross now. And yet that was his will. He, at first you see in the, in the account, you almost see like he doesn't want to do it. Because he's like telling his mom, it's not my time yet. And she's like telling the servants, do whatever he says to do. She puts it back in his hands. And then he's like, I think he's looking at this scene, and it's a wedding, and he's longing for his bride. <laughs> and he's like, I want my wedding. I'm going to go to the cross. And so he does the miracle. It's just like, okay, here we go. You know, he does the miracle. And he starts heading to the cross. So in our day, when he does the same miracle, we are the vessels. We are the vessels filled with water, which is the Holy Spirit. When he touches water to wine in us, and we get transformation at the highest level, union with God, it's going to be Christ through 